Good morning, everybody. Might be able to turn that down just a bit, or I'll be whispering. Hope you're all great. This is a a new series, and we're preparing ourselves. You know, this is kind of Lent season, and we're preparing for uh, the Resurrection Sunday, which is going to be great. So I'm going to be with you the next two weeks, teaching out of 1 Peter chapter 1, the first nine verses, and then James is going to be with you, and we'll be here as well, but he's going to deliver the message on Easter. So very excited about that. It's going to be powerful, I know. It's going to be something new and creative and exciting, both at the beach and here at Catalina Room. So bite your friends. Uh, It's always, always um, a very, very moving experience to be part of an Easter service. There's just something about it, right? There's something about the, that season and that moment where we reflect on, on truly the one thing, the main thing in all of life and scripture is the resurrection of Christ. It kind of, it's, it's like the anchor, and that's what I want to talk, talk about this morning. I want to prepare us for that, and I want to begin, in the, we've, we've done this the last two weeks, we're really focusing on centering on Jesus. And the aspect of Jesus' life that I want to look at today is that Jesus' resurrection brings a living hope. And it's the most certain thing in your life. We are all searching for something certain that we can anchor our life to. And what I'm going to um, talk to you about this morning has the potential to change your life by refocusing you on something. We all get off focus, right? And the, the week happens, and there's a lot of events in your life and a lot of things thrown at you, and you, you just you react, and you're thrown off balance oftentimes, right? You, you get that. And, and, and you recover by the end of the week because you come back and get recentered, refocused, right? That's why we come together. We come together and encourage each other, but to refocus and get our lives recentered on something that's going to give us uh, the ability and the power to um, send us into the new week. And so we start today in our new week by refocusing on this, the risen Christ, which is a hope that is like an anchor. It's the, it, it is the only anchor of your soul. And that's what I want to look at this morning that has any level of um, credibility uh, in the midst of stormy seas. One of, one of my friends that I swim with is a lifeguard. I swim with all these lifeguards. And this one guy, Steve, um, he, he's, he's posted at Catalina. And I'm thinking, oh, man, you got a great job. I mean, Catalina's idyllic, right? You go to Catalina, and it's like this sleepy little village town off the coast of the Pacific, you know, off the coast of Southern California in the Pacific. And it's this little beautiful little town of Avalon, and and you can take a little boat over and uh, spend the day, spend a weekend, spend a week, and you just—it's just really nice. But I, but he says, and this is kind of him him speaking. He says it's it's a challenging job because there's two problems over there. Number one are the storms, and the second is scuba diving accidents. By the way, um, a lot of scuba diving accidents. People go over, they go on these charters. And uh, they're inexperienced, and they get in the water, and they get themselves into a, a situation where they can't get out. And when you're in water, and you're breathing oxygen from a tank, and you have a problem, uh, it's not a place to panic. 
It's, and, uh, and often things can go wrong if you're not well prepared. But the first thing is so interesting to me that they, they have these moorings in Avalon for the boats. So the vessels come over and they're either sailboats or they're driven by big diesel engines and, and they arrive and they're moored because the seas will change. And so it is in our life. The seas of life will change and you will hit storms and you need something to anchor your vessel, your life to, right? I mean, we know this, but how often do we focus in on what that thing is that is most central to the foundation of our lives and our faith? I mean, we talk about a lot of things, talking about growing in Christ and sharing our faith and and being more like Christ and living out this moral standard and all these other things, but all of it hinges on what you're anchored to. And what I want to challenge you this morning with, and we're just going to look at the first point today, and then I'll look at the second points um, with you next week. It's out of 1 Peter chapter 1, the first nine verses. And it's this, that it's a living hope in the resurrection that anchors your faith to something real. And we need that. And I'm going to convince you of that this morning, hopefully. So here it is. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter, we know, is a young fisherman. And he's met by Jesus on the shore and ends up in the ministry serving Jesus. Long after Jesus has now ascended, Peter's taking on the role of now pastoring churches that have been planted by the early disciples and now the disciples of the disciples. And things are starting to grow. And all of a sudden, the movement, Christian movement, is, is flourishing through Asia Minor, right? It's no longer this little thing in Jerusalem in Israel. It is now moved north and it's just spreading all over the known world. There's a problem. And it's Nero. And he's the emperor. And we're coming to the close of his life. And Nero was not friendly to the Christians. And he had convinced the Romans that anybody that served one God was suspect. That if you serve just one God and not all the gods, the Romans had lots of gods. They adopted all the Greek gods. And they believed in mythology and they believed in all this stuff about all, where all these gods interacted with the underworld and the sea and the mountains and everywhere. To, to believe in just one creator God was odd. Isn't that... It? Now, for us, that doesn't... See, that seems odd that you would believe in the other thing, right? Because that's what we believe in. But in that culture, it was very, very odd. And so there was a lot of persecution during Nero's reign... And he's writing, and he actually says in chapter 5, verse 13, he goes, I'm writing from Babylon. He calls it Babylon, and that's not a good thing, and it's Rome. He's probably referring to Rome is like a Babylon. It's so godless. There's so many gods, they don't have the right god. It's godless. And uh, idolatry was rampant, and these lesser gods were really lesser hopes and lesser certainties. Because they, they couldn't anchor your soul. 
And what, G, what Peter is saying is that Jesus came to anchor our souls to something real, something concrete that gives us a level of certainty that nothing else can give. So you can imagine there's a tremendous contrast and there's going to be conflict when there's contrast. When you believe something and know it, and, and the majority of the people don't believe in that, there's going to be a sense of contrast and, and conflict. And this is what he says. He says, to those who reside as aliens, he calls them aliens, scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foundation, the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So he says, essentially, that by the sanctifying work, we all want to be holy. We all want to live the Christian life, right? That's the objective of the Christian life, is to live the Christian life. And we live it by being sanctified, but no longer by our own efforts, but by the work of the Spirit working in us. The more the Spirit of God works in us, the more we become obedient to the plan of God. That's what Peter's saying. How does that happen? Well, it's got to be anchored to something. you got to start with the anchor. It's at the end of the chain that the boat is attached to that is all important. And if it's not grounded, you're going to drift and you're going to hit the rocks and it's going to be bad. And that's what happens in life without an anchor. So it's worth focusing on. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's we're born again. We're now renewed, regenerated. The word is to regenerate according to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The living hope that you and I have, the anchor that you and I have in life is attached to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Peter's saying. And then he goes on, and he's going to talk about this. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There's something firm about that, right? Uh, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The eternity of your souls is what everybody's looking for. To outlive life is the goal. That is the goal. Everybody wants to outlive life. And every philosophy has a view on that. Every religion. And what G Peter is describing is Jesus is the anchor that provides us that security that in this life, 
no matter the storms we go through and the final storm, which is death, we have a certainty. And he says three things about it. First of all, it's an inheritance. It's something certain. It's unchangeable. You can count on it. Number two, it comes through suffering. Everyone's got to suffer to get through to the process, to get to the point where you really understand what your anchor is and what your anchor isn't. There's a sifting. And then finally, it produces a level of joy that comes. It's like childbirth is often described. Tremendous pain followed by great joy. The process is hard. The result is joyful. And same with the Christian life. And so those three things, and I just want to look at the first one, is the living hope. It is something that is dependably, dependably certain. You can depend on it. And that's what I want to focus on. But here's the problem. The problem is our definition of hope is this, a feeling of expectation. That's all it is. Modern hope for most people is a feeling of expectation. Well, what happens in the midst of a storm when the anchor gets pulled? Your feeling of expectation changes, doesn't it? It's no longer anchored to anything. You're now, your feeling of expectation, hoping that something good's going to happen, is no longer keeping you rooted to something. And, and all of a sudden, now you're at a drift, you're at a drift, and you're in danger. And that happens. And, and that's the modern, common definition of hope, is a feeling of expectation. In fact, I did some research. Just type up psychology today and look up the word hope. And what do you find? There's all these articles that talk about how hope helps us manage stress and anxiety, how much we need hope. Society needs hope. And I'm going to talk about Viktor Frankl um, and his book uh, um, next week and his uh, discovery of hope through um, living through two and a half years in a concentration camp in Germany called Dachau. I'm going to save that for next week. But, but hope is something that we all need, and we ha- it will help us cope with adversity. you got to have hope, and that gets you through adversity. Absolutely true. The problem is not one of the articles I read actually claimed that hope is a certainty, something that you know for certain. And that's the problem. Until you have a, so- a hope that is certain, It's just a great feeling. It's an expectation. You're hoping things are going to work out. And and what we're discovering this morning is that Peter is convincing us that the living hope is Jesus resurrecting from the dead. And that's the anchor. And it's an inheritance. And he's going to talk about this inheritance. The problem, though, is deep and severe in society. John Mark Comer wrote a book called uh, My Name is Hope. Has anybody seen that little book? It's a book on depression and anxiety in America. And basically, essentially, what he's doing is he's helping the reader work through the common feeling of anxiety and the pressure of life and oftentimes um, our, our, how we slip into depression and discouragement. And after each chapter, there's a, there's a page on the left, and it's a picture a diagram of a molecule or a, uh, a couple molecules coming together, which is another a drug that helps treat antidepressants. 
And so he's, so each chapter, he's bringing biblical encouragement, but also identifying that we as a society are working hard to try to help prevent that through proper prescriptions and medications. And, he, and there's a lot of them. And each chapter, he um, exposes a new one. And in the early part of the book, he, he references 2010. 253 million prescriptions were written for antidepressants. There's 353 million people in America, and 253 million prescriptions were actually written. It's $11.6 billion industry spent on antidepressants. Third, the third leading cause of Teenage, the third leading cause of death among teenagers is suicide. Death by suicide. Third. It's a serious issue. It's a serious problem. We've talked about it with, when we went through our series with Elijah and how Elijah fell into depression. And I think what uh, we are learning here in this text is we need a living hope from the dead. We need a living hope that brings us out from the dead into life. And it's because we've been given an inheritance. Let's talk about this idea of an inheritance. The word, he says, it's, we obtain this inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. It's protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be received in the last days, in the last time. I mean, all, Peter goes into great detail, doesn't he, to convince you that nobody can take this hope away from you. It is so certain, it's like an inheritance. And the word inheritance actually means a property held in perpetuity. It's something, it's, it's a deposit in your bank account that cannot be taken away. It won't change. It is secured. We just went through a very serious shakeup in our financial institution, haven't we? When... Um, the um, uh, SVB Bank, um, uh, where, what am I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I just, I just said it last. Silicon. Silicon, thank you. Silicon Valley Bank. $42 billion it was a, were literally withdrawn from this bank because of fear that the, there weren't enough deposits, so the money wasn't there. We have just gone through a very serious shakeup. And, and a level of fear that we haven't seen really since 2008. That people all of a sudden were worried that their, that their accounts weren't there anymore for all sorts of reasons. And we won't get into it. And, and Gib Cooper, uh, who is in the financial industry at the beach, indicated I, I did a wonky job explaining it. But I was accurate, but it was very wonky. I said, now how was it wonky? I understand that when interest rates go up, that bond yields go down. I understand that, and it devaluates the bond that you actually have. So I have a little bit of knowledge, but he did say I did a wonky job, so I'm not going to go into much more detail and expose my ignorance, even though I was a political economics major at Berkeley. But I, <laughs> I studied Reaganomics there, okay, which is really quite amazing to be studying Reaganomics in one of the most liberal schools in America. And it was quite an interesting thing as I 
was hearing that. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But tied to that is another story, frankly, about inheritance. Because I went to school with this fraternity brother, and we played rugby together. And we were in a lot of classes, Dan, we became great, great friends. And so we sat side by side in many classes, drawing funny pictures and uh, sometimes really feeling really bored. But we also studied together. So here we are, living in a fraternity together, playing rugby together, and going to school together. And he would always tell me, this is so funny, I don't know why he would always do this, but he would always remind me of my upbringing. Like, why do you keep bringing up my upbringing? Fine, I'm from Palos Verdes. And he came from a, a single-parent home and lived up in Northern California with not a lot of means. And he, you know, I think his mom really had to put things together in order to get him through school and I don't know what it cost back then, but it was like $256 a quarter or something like that. Like, it was crazy. And yet he always reminded me and said, you have nothing, because I always worried about my grades and I worried about my future and I worried about how we would make ends meet and when Denise and I were married and we'd have to put our kids through school and college on, on the income that we had and it was limited. And so there was a lot of, Concern. There's a lot of anxiety and stress about that. And I knew my parents weren't going to like jump in and just rescue us. They, we were on our own. We were literally, but yet I knew as like, as a safety net, you always have this inheritance at the end of your life at some point, but you're not going to live on it. And so I just dismissed all these comments like, why are you worrying? He'd always say, Todd, what are you worrying about? Just because you're not doing well in this class or whatever, you're going to do fine. You're going to do fine. You're going to do fine. And I just dismissed that. And what I came to realize is I did that because most of my life, I have felt like I've had to earn my way and strive. And there's nothing wrong with that. Fundamentally, that's a good thing for a young person to learn is how to make their own way in life. I firmly believe in that, and I think my parents did a great job in, in communicating that and modeling that and allowing us to make our own way, and we did that. But I think what he was trying to tempt me with was this inheritance that I could just fall back on and not worry about. And I didn't, and I didn't take the bait, and I kept firm and strong with my mindset is I've got to work hard. But here's the th interesting thing about it. When I look at this text, what Peter is saying is that you've been given a deposit, and it's a real deposit, and it has real value in your life, and you can spend it. It's, it's not like put it out of your mind, and one day you're going to get this inheritance, which is salvation. This is an inheritance for the future, but it's also inheritance for the present. And here's the unique thing that my friend Gib reminded me of at the beach, which I did not think of, and it's this. When you have a deposit in the bank that you know is not going to be taken away from you, you can make major risks. You can take risks with your life that you couldn't take before. And I'm talking spiritually. I'm talking about the fact that you can step out there, and you can trust the Lord, and you can... You can put your weight and confidence in him no matter what. And you can take a step of faith. And if God's calling you right now to take a step of faith and risk, you can do it because you got a bank account to fall back on that God has given you. And he wants you to rely on that. 
because he wants to make sure that your future is firm. And he describes it in a couple different ways, and then I want to end with a little story. He talks about it being imperishable. It's not corruptible. It's, not, it's unchangeable. It's unspoilable. It's undefiable. And the idea is that it can't be ravaged by hostile armies that come in. We just came back from Israel, 25 of us. And one of the things we saw were cities that had been ravished by wars over and over for thousands of years. This country is not too, Israel's not 200 years old. It's thousands of years old. One of the earliest civilizations ever discovered in the whole world is in Jericho. Possibly 5,000 BC. One of the earliest civilizations. And there it is. And so you really get this sense. This is, there, people lived here and, and built a, a city for themselves. And then it just got ravaged. And then another city was built on top of that, and one over another, over another, and the land is built up on top of cities and civilizations that have been ravaged by, ravaged by hostile armies. That is not going to happen to your faith because you have a living hope. It's imperishable. And notice it says, from the dead. One of the things, and probably the most fearful thing in our lives is death, the end of our lives. Now, when you're young, like, you got the whole world ahead of you. No problem. It's the last thing from your head, thinking. And in ancient civilization, though, they lived side by side with this idea of life and death. You've got to understand that. Most ancient traditions and ancient civilizations understood clearly the, the, the relationship between the two, life and death. And they were surrounded by it, and they... And they they had they, their tombs and the idea of putting the body in the tomb and then removing the bones. And they, so they were constantly addressing the dead and living in that culture. Even Homer's Iliad and other ancient writings describe wrath and armies. And Achilles went into the battle, the battle of, uh, over, over Helen in Troy um, in, in modern-day Turkey. The Achaeans came over. They wanted to rescue Helen, and they had this great battle in, for, over Troy, the city of Troy. And Achilles went into battle knowing he was going to die in this battle. He was told ahead of time, you're going to die in this battle. And, and, and yet he went with this great honor and this great courage, which is what the whole book is about, is his courage to fight and to be brave and to leave a mark that you take on into eternity. Because the whole point is the way you live your life and if you live by courage and strength and honor, you get to take that with you into eternity. But now what we see, and, and COVID really brought this out, this fear of death. And, we, and it was put in our faces. Every day during the pandemic, death was all around us and we didn't like that. And yet what Jesus is saying is living hope conquers the greatest fear that we have, which is death. We no longer have to be afraid of it. No longer. It's done. Because he has conquered the one. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where's the sting of death? It's gone. The victory is in Christ. I mean, it's, it's really, really clear. And so... We see that clearly, and it's, it's this living hope 
in this, and this is the inheritance that we have. It's protected, and, and in fact, we're regenerated into it. Um, I want to jump to a place where I ended up on this last tour. Been to, been to the Holy Land um, three, three times. This is my third time. And it's been like a very calculated tour, and I've led people into these various places to experience the Holy Land and these sites. And one of the things that's just so amazing is that every place you go, you're realizing something really happened here. And there's evidence of Jesus all around, whether you're in this church of Holy Sepulcher or you're at the church of the Nativity where Jesus was born. Everywhere you go, there were evidence of battles or historical events. And the thing you walk away from is Jesus is no, no, not a myth. It's a reality. No question. Absolutely no question. Mount Carmel was really a unique experience for me. And here, I want to end with this. Why a living hope is so important to me. Let me tell you what happened. So I, I wrote this, and it's in the book now. This, And so being at Mount Carmel for me personally, after writing a manuscript on the life of Elijah, when Elijah's whole life climax comes to a climax, the story comes at Mount Carmel when he's, he's victorious over the prophets. And I talk about having a personal Mount Carmel experience. I said, we should all have one. Mount Carmel experience. In a way, it's an encounter with a living hope. Something certain, something that actually happened that gives us hope. God wins our battles for us. He did for Elijah. He defeated an enemy. Jesus will be our living hope in his resurrection as he defeats our ultimate enemy, death. We strive and we fight our own battles until we realize it has been done for us. Every day we encounter a battle, Mount Carmel. I have stood on this mountain now three times in my lifetime, all three while leading tours through the Holy Land. Once would have been enough to personally connect with the story and its gravity, to be standing at the very spot that Elijah called down fire for all to see has a way of making this place even more to the average observer. It really all happened here, but of course, we must be asking ourselves what difference does it make to my faith? It's more than a mountain. The site of a historical battle long forgotten by most as if standing silently at a Civil War battle site wondering what difference it makes to us now living 160 years later or walking through the actual gate of Auschwitz in Poland wondering what it was like and what it all means to you. The past is the past, but not for the believer. The past is connected to the present because it is a living hope that guides our way. It has been a, for 20 years since my last visit. I'm in a different place in my walk of faith now, most assuredly. We arrived by bus this time as I was ready for it. I was expecting something, something different. I'm not sure what exactly, but I wanted this to be the more meaningful than ever before, more than simply a stop on a Holy Land tour. You know, when you arrive somewhere and you are anticipating an encounter, something to happen, that's how I felt. Now finished with my manuscript for this book, which comes to a huge crescendo at this very spot on the earth, I was waiting for the earth to shake for me personally, and the day arrived. It was windy and rainy. Nice touch, Lord. For Elijah, the sacrifice was over. The rains began to slap against the mountain, making it uncomfortable to be there for too long. The winds howled as the rain hits us from angles. The first thing you see is the statue of this great man, Elijah, over 20 feet tall. He's standing, holding his sword, victorious under his foot is a dead prophet of Baal. 
All you see is his head under Elijah's foot. He's ascended, conquered, and now he's found a moment to relish in the victory with a sword held high. I stood by the statue this time with a sense of accomplishment. By writing this book, I hopefully have brought to life the story of Elijah for a modern reader. But more importantly, I felt deeply connected to this 9th century BC prophet of God. I'm at a different place in my life now, 20 years after the encounter with this statue in this place. I'm no longer wielding my sword, fighting battles, trying to discover who I am, proving my worth, scrambling for higher ground in my career. I stood settled as if I, to say, I have arrived victorious but with nothing more to prove. I can finally say the battle is the Lord's. David said the battle that before uh, he slayed Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 47. He knew it. He was certain. I have wanted that certainty. As a young man, he knew where his strength lay. It has taken me over 20 years to realize this. The striving is over. I am now leading the way for others. The tour quickly surveyed the scene, had a look inside the church, and headed for the bus. I spoke of its significance, set the scene, and spoke of the sacrifice being the placeholder for a more significant one to come. Elijah being a Jesus figure, the sacrifice and laying of the bales is the slaying of the bales is a temporary one until the true Elijah prophet Messiah would come and set his sword against the neck of the bale of this world and bring a stop to his destruction and mayhem in our lives. I was alone now in the midst of strangers observing and shuffling around in the rain searching for meaning to this sight. I stayed behind for a moment. Twice on this trip, the Lord spoke and told me personally to do something. Once at Jordan River when he said, get baptized, and I did. This time I heard, take a minute alone with me. Here, I want you to feel something, not know something. I say that there was a small garden. I, I saw that there was a small garden at the edge of the mountain that looked down over the Ezra Delan Valley. At the base of the mountain below is the brook Kishon, where Elijah slayed the prophets of Baal. You can see Megiddo in the distance and, and where the great armies will have the final battle in Revelation. It will be an amazing Amazing scene. Jumping ahead. I prayed, Lord, for the next 20 years or so, my final years, like Elijah during his final years after his great victory, after ascent and descent into darkness and despair, use me mightily, I pray. I, I walked the way of Elijah. I prayed for my family, all three married kids, now with grandkids. I prayed, God, that you would use them to become kingdom seekers, leading others to Jesus. I prayed for my marriage to Denise, now 37 years. God, use us together. We are still your servants. After all these years of serving you, I've struggled, striving in time in my own power that seemed to have accomplished little, but there have been moments when you showed up mightily. We established a beachhead in the South Bay of Southern California for others to follow Jesus. We have touched countless lives in your strength. We have ascended and descended and ascended again. Victory and defeat on a loop. I have ceased striving in a good way. I have battled my own idols. I have slayed others. But your best work in us remains. I'm no longer striving, fighting my own battles. I now see what you did on this mountain through Elijah, your servant. A day will come soon when I will be replaced by others, as was he. I plan to play a part in that transition. We are on the right track. My kids are now in full stride, taking the mantle from me. It was a short prayer, 
but one I will never forget. I had a moment. I spoke it out over the valley below, and I saw below where I will be joining the armies of heaven, returning to this valley with Jesus, and so will you. Until then, use me, Lord. I'm settled for certain. I'm settled for certain. Then when rain came from heaven and with a mighty force, it was a sign that God would bring spiritual blessing once again to the people. So it was a moment, no question, and it was a moment where I think I realized um, that I had been striving and now I really understand hope. Hope is a certainty that is not mine, but it's the Lord's and it's in the resurrection and it has rooted me to something so that I no longer have to struggle. I no longer have to try to prove myself. I can rest in an assurance that the sanctifying work of the Spirit is being done. Let's pray. Father, our hope, our eternal hope, is a hope that is given to us by Jesus, secured by the resurrection. No question. We are certain of that. And may we be people that live that out, taking risks because of our inheritance but also falling back in trust, striving less because of the security that we have. It's been settled, and I no longer have to prove myself to anyone. You've done it. And I can be faithful to your call in my life as a result. And if there's anybody here that is questioning, wondering, seeking, it's a simple conversation with God. God, here I am. Bring me that living hope. The living hope that comes in Jesus through his resurrection from the dead, overcoming death, and now standing in life. And you can have that assurance right now. Just call out to God. God, I want that assurance. I want that living hope. I want that to be the anchor of my life no matter what happens, no matter what I encounter, no matter what others might say or try to sway me from I have that assurance, and it's mine. Thank you. Thank you for that assurance. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Todd. Um, we have this beautiful hope of the resurrected Jesus, a sure hope. Um, and we have it. We have the hope of Jesus' resurrection because first Jesus died. He died to deal with our sin, the great barrier that stands between us and God, the great barrier that stands between us and the eternal hope. And on Jesus' cross, every sin, past, present, and future is dealt for in full. And so we're going to celebrate that together and declare it over ourselves as we take communion. And Todd, you said something is, uh, in, in, um, in what you wrote after your encounter with God at, my, at Mount Carmel that God wanted to, that you knew something, but he wanted you to feel something. And so right now, before we, uh, before we take the elements and declare Jesus' death over us, the finished work of his cross, the full assurance of forgiveness, um, we're just going to take a moment to come and listen to the Lord together as the elements are being passed around. And so right now, just we're going to have a moment of quiet and invite the Lord to speak if there's anything that he's going to bring to mind, anything that we need to hang on to from what we heard in his word this morning. Just have a moment of quiet. So right now, would you just pause and reflect with me? And even uh, and pray along with me that God would speak and would move. So right now, Lord, we invite you. Is there anything specific that you want to bring to mind to us? Anything that you want us to really pay attention to that we just heard? 
Come Holy Spirit. anyone in this room that just feels in a special need for the living hope of Jesus. God, I just pray that you'd meet them in, in power right now. Pray that they would see Jesus as the great hope that you really are, Lord. Pray that you'd meet them and comfort them. And right now we're going to um, and celebrate the fact, declare over ourselves the fact that we're secure in the love of God because of Jesus' cross. We do it not just as a tradition and not just as something we do because it's what we're supposed to do, um, but we do it for a fresh encounter with the risen Jesus, declaring his work over ourselves. We're declaring what's true of us, that our faults don't have the final word, our failures don't have the final word, our mistakes don't have the final word, the brokenness in us doesn't have the final word, but the love of God displayed in Jesus' cross is what has the final word of who we really are. And so right now, we're going to take those elements declaring that truth over us. We have a living hope in Jesus. So we take the bread that represents Jesus' body, his sinless life lived in our place. And right now, we take together in remembrance of Jesus. We take the cup, it's Jesus' blood poured out for us, that he died in our place. He took in himself the full weight of our sin, and we declare that forgiveness over ourselves right now as we take together. God, we love you. Thank you that every sin, past, present, and future is paid in full, and that now the truest thing about us is that we're loved by God. We declare that truth over ourselves and we declare the living hope of Jesus' resurrection. We know how the story ends and we pray that we would live as if that's true. We ask for that in Jesus' name, amen. Can you all stand with me as we finish in this song? In the darkness we were waiting Without hope, without light Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory To a cradle in Together, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the
Let this be written in our hearts this morning. You are our living hope, the cornerstone, the truth on which we stand. We thank you for that, God. Thank you for giving us your son that we may know eternal life and hope in you. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We'll bless you guys. We'll see you next week.